Good morning, Thrive. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. And along with Reagan, we get to co-pastor this worship community that we call Thrive. For those of you who are here for the very first time, we're so glad that you're with us. If you're in from out of town, we hope you have safe travels and that you enjoy the family that you're with. If not, we hope you have safe journeys home. Uh, and for those of you who are live streaming this morning, whether you're traveling or home with uh, the gunk that may be passing around your family, uh, we just hope that this Christmas is one that you enjoy and that you are Cover quickly or travel safely or whatever it is you need, know that we're in prayer for you. Uh, we are going to get straight into our scripture this morning because uh, this is one of those Sundays I've probably bitten off more than I can chew. So we're just going to get into it without any further debate. Today's theme is love. We're going to talk about the layers of love that Matthew reveals to us in his first two chapters in his gospel. This is the beginning of the New Testament in your Bibles. If you want to open up your Bibles or your Bible apps to Matthew chapter 1, this is the way the Bible chooses to introduce us to Jesus, right? Like, this is a big deal. You've, if you've read through the Bible, you've read all of the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew Bible. I mean, pages upon pages and chapters upon chapters and books upon books. And it's all leading up to this sort of big monumental moment. And then Matthew comes in and says, let me introduce you to Jesus. Do you want to hear what he says? A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, who was the mother of Tamar, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Aram. Aram was the father of Aminadab. Um, yeah, something like that. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amos. Amos was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. This was at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Ezor. Ezor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliezer. Eliezer was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Right? Do not send this to the person that knows Hebrew. I just butchered half of those names. And so Matthew ends his opening statement with, so there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 generations from the exile to Babylon to Christ. Now, when, when I read these names to you, you might be thinking, why on earth are we talking about these names on the Sunday before Christmas? But when I read these names, when I hear this litany of lineage, this ancestry that Jesus possesses, what I hear loud and clearly is the first layer of God's love that I think Matthew's trying to wake us up to. When Matthew introduces us to Christ, the first thing he wants us to know is that God's love is deliberate. God's love is deliberate. Let me explain. 
The reason why Matthew begins his gospel with this genealogy and the reason why this gospel of Matthew begins the New Testament is because Matthew connects who Jesus is to the story of the people of Israel. Right? The people of Israel can trace all of their lineages back to Abraham. That part is shared. Remember, God says to Abraham, your children will number the stars, and his children become the nation of Israel. Now, fewer people can trace their lineage back to King David. And it was important that, that Christ be in the line of King David. But even fewer people can trace their lineage back to that point of exile. And then for Jesus to come from that, it's like the target is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Matthew is telling us that, that this Jesus is inherently connected to the story of Israel in a unique and powerful way. There's a through line throughout the entire Old Testament that he's telling us through this lineage. And he says Jesus is the culmination of everything that has come before. Everything that you know from these Hebrew scriptures, Jesus is wrapped up in that. Now, he also shares this with us because in a moment in chapter 2, we're going to be introduced to a false king named Herod, right? And we remember Herod from the Christmas nativity scene, and it's usually the part that all the boys want to play because he's the bad guy, right? And who doesn't want to be a good villain, right? And Herod is kind of a false king. He has no royal blood whatsoever in his family line. And in fact, he's only half Jewish. And so Matthew's lifting us up to say, here's Jesus. Here's this child, this promised king who has the through line of the whole Old Testament. And he's about to meet this false king of Herod who's, who has no royal blood, who is only half Jewish and, and, and doesn't share the story of the Israelite people. It's important because Matthew knew who his audience was. Matthew's gospel is written specifically to make the claim that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Every gospel has an audience in mind, and Matthew's gospel is trying to make the case for a Jewish Messiah named Jesus. So he's trying to tell people who come from the Jewish tradition, this is the guy you've been waiting for. This is the moment you've been waiting for. So much so that he points out this beautiful symbolic numbering that God has laid out. He says there were 14 generations between Abraham and David, and then 14 generations between David and the exile, and then 14 generations between the exile and Jesus. That's three sets of 14, or if you're a math whiz like me, that's six sets of seven, right? Six sets of seven, which means that Jesus would be the first person in the seventh generation of this group of seven, right? It, that, the number seven is a big number in the Jewish tradition. It's an important spiritual number. And so the fact that Jesus is the beginning of the seventh cycle of generations from the beginning of Abraham, this is not a mistake. Matthew is trying to shake us awake and to say, the people of Israel, wake up. For 2,000 years, God has been at work. For 2,000 years, this lineage has been forming. For 2,000 years, you've been waiting for this moment. And here it is. Here it is. I don't know if we got any good planners in the room. Anybody in here like a good plan? Yeah? Who's married to a good planner? Anybody? Excel spreadsheets are your friend. You got it calendared out. You know where you're spending the next eight Christmases, Right? Love a good plan. I love to plan for vacations. I, I like to maximize my vacation experience, right? I can't stand when I'm going on vacation and, and I say, so what are we going to do? And people say, I oh, will just figure it out. 
That's a quick way to waste all your time, right? That's no fun at all. I get my spreadsheet going, and I'll have the itinerary down to the minute of exactly where we're going, what we're going to eat, because you know we got to eat the best food. You look at my Google search history before vacation, it's best blank in blank, right? Best restaurants in Santa Fe, best whatever, right? And so I'll get this down to a science. My, a couple of friends and Reagan and I went on a road trip to the U.S. Southwest a couple years ago, and I mean, I had this thing down, man. I sent them the spreadsheet, and they were honestly concerned about me, right? And, uh, and I, I had accounted for everything I knew. When we were getting where and where we were going, where we were going to eat, and all the places we were going to stop is fantastic. And one of the places we wanted to stop, one of my friends said, if we, if we can stop at a place called Antelope Canyon, that'd be really important to me. You know Antelope Canyon. You've seen it on the background of, of Mac computers. It's what's called a slot canyon. It's narrow, and it's got these beautiful waves in the rocks kind of and this beautiful photography, and she said, as much as I want to see the Grand Canyon, I really want to see the Antelope Canyon, too. And I said, don't worry, we'll get it in there. And I had it in there. I had it on the spreadsheet, and it was cell number C53 or whatever, right? And we had Antelope Canyon right there. And so we're driving from from the Grand Canyon to to Durango uh, one morning, and Antelope Canyon's on the way, and so we get to Antelope Canyon. And if you don't know about this, it's a really popular tourist spot, so you have to reserve your time, and you got to be there on time. You, You can't go in a later time slot. You've got to be there for your time slot, and it is booked full solid, not just that day, but for weeks afterwards, right? So you better be there on time, and we were going to be there 15 minutes early, right? I had us getting there 15 minutes early. We pull in. I walk up. I said, hey, we're here to see the Antelope Canyon. I've got my, my Canon camera ready to go, right? And they said, you're 45 minutes late, and I hadn't factored in the time change, and I watched my friend try to be a really good Christian in that moment as she realized that maybe her dreams were dashed. And, and the, 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 the short version is we ended up going on the canyon and got all the pictures, and it was great. Uh, the, the guides there were very generous and gracious and allowed us to go on that, that tour that was starting an hour after the one that we'd signed up for. As much as I love to plan, as much as I love a detail-oriented travel itinerary, I come up short. I can't plan the perfect vacation. No matter how hard I try, I miss something as simple as a time change, right? What does it say about our God that we have a God who could wait patiently and plan in excruciating detail this 14 by 14 by 14 generational lineage from Abraham to David to exile to Jesus and that it could all happen flawlessly precisely according to plan. What does it say about our God that our God is that proactive, has that kind of attention to detail? You know, when we talk about God having plans for our lives, I think sometimes we talk about that in the broad brush sense of, you know, oh yeah, God has a general plan for me, but I kind of get to fill in the details. Surely God doesn't care that much about how my life is conducted or where my life is going. And I hope that one thing we hear this morning is that God's love is deliberate, right? Matthew's saying God's love is deliberate. God has a plan, not just in a broad brush sense, but in the finest little detail. He doesn't have a paint roller. He's painting in pointillism. The plan that God has for your life is detailed and precise. You're here with intent. You're not here on accident. God isn't surprised by your presence or by your actions or by whatever curveballs you think that you're throwing God in your life. Maybe you think that you've taken your life off of rails and that God's plans are blown up. Guess what? That's not true. 
There's nothing that you can do or throw at God that is a surprise. You have a clear purpose that God has created you for. And it may be monumental or it may be modest, but it is uniquely yours and nobody else's because our God is deliberate. Somebody say amen. The same God who planned for Jesus planned for you. The same God who planned for Jesus planned for you. As excited as we are about Christmas arriving, as excited as we are about the baby Jesus coming to the manger again, that is how excited God was the moment you joined all of creation. Can you accept that? That God is that crazy about you? That God has been planning for you and for this moment just like we have been planning for Christmas? That's just the first thing that Matthew has to say about love, by the way. He keeps going. And Matthew says, so, so get in your mind that Matthew's just laid out this incredibly planned out, this perfect, this, this polished, this, this, this wonderful lineage from Abraham to David to exile to Jesus. And so if you're reading this for the first time, if this is the first time you're learning about Jesus, you're thinking maybe Matthew's story of who Jesus is is going to continue in this perfect direction. And oh my goodness, how we'd be wrong. So on your screens, you're going to see uh, Matthew 1 beginning in verse 18. We're picking up where we left off. And Matthew says this, he says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ, the guy that we've all been waiting for for 2,000 years, the one who has been perfectly planned by our cosmic God, this is how his birth took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Whoops. First sentence of Jesus' story is scandal. First sentence of Jesus' story is scandal. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus or Yeshua in their language. It means God saves because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken to the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as the angel from God commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he didn't have relations with her until she gave birth to a son. Joseph called him Jesus. Every year when I read the birth stories, something new jumps out at me. That's the beauty of Scripture. Every time you open it up, it it speaks in a new and compelling way. And this year when I was reading the birth story from Matthew, and I was thinking about the layers of God's love that Matthew's revealing, I heard this, that God's love is real. God's love is real. And what I mean by that is that God's love does not live in la-la land. God does not live in some fake version of the way things really are. God's love lives in the grounded reality that is our lives. The first sentence of God's story in Christ is scandal. And this whole story is flying off the rails from the very beginning. And it gets real really fast, right? Why does Joseph want to quietly dismiss Mary? 
Because he knows that as an unmarried young woman, if it's, if it's found out that she has gotten pregnant before she's married, and certainly by someone that's not her betrothed husband, right, she will be stoned to death in the public square. These are the stakes on the line for the mother of God, right? That Joseph knows if he brings this to light, as angry and as furious and as frustrated as he may be, if he brings this to light, the consequences for Mary are death and humiliation. But let's also consider what Joseph chooses to do. He says, I'll just dismiss her quietly because he's a righteous man, right? And I believe Joseph was trying to do the best thing. But put on your thinking caps for a second and consider what life in first century ancient Israel under Roman occupation would have been like for an unwed single mother whose child was born out of adultery, out of wedlock. Was Mary's life going to be drastically improved? If Joseph had quietly dismissed her, would she have gone on to prosperity or anything? No. Would it have possibly been better that she'd just be stoned to death right then? Because the life she'd be living would have been one of incredible poverty, humiliation. She would have been an outcast. She would have been in exile. She would have not been allowed to participate in the life of the community. She wouldn't have been able to go to temple. It would have been the longest, slowest death that you could imagine. These are the stakes. This is the Christmas story. And then Joseph decides by the angels leading to take her as his wife and to raise this child. But guys, once again, this is first century ancient Israel. Anybody grow up in a community that knew how to gossip? Yeah? Anybody live in a community that knows how to gossip? Anybody know what it's like when everybody's up in everybody's business? Do you think that Nazareth would not have found out the truth about Jesus' birth? You know that's not Joseph's baby, right? She says it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can hear this, right? You've heard this in your own lives. The way that these kind of stories begin to whisper and the side eyes that people get when they go, I know what's really going on. Is the Holy Family going to live an easy life? Is it going to be easy for Mary to still walk around with Jesus when everybody, everybody knows? Everybody knows? That's not Joseph's kid. Even when the angel convinces Joseph to do the right thing, the right thing is still a hard thing, right? This is not going to be an easy life for the Holy Family. God is intentionally choosing a messy, difficult, and, and in some ways beautifully normal and grounded and real family experience for who's going to be surrounded. They're going to be surrounded by scandal, but this is not some new deviation for God either. Right, you might think, Scott, how does this connect? Because we had this perfect plan that God had in the first lineage that Matthew reveals, and now everything's going off the rails. This feels like God is switching gears, but did, when you were listening to that lineage, you would have noticed a few names that Matthew uplifts to remind us that God has been about messy and real and grounded for a long time. You would have heard the name Tamar. A woman in David's lineage who was assaulted, allowed to be assaulted by her own family. You would have heard the name Rahab, a prostitute who was part of the royal lineage of David. 
You would have heard David's own unfaithfulness with Bathsheba, the, the wife of Uriah, who, became, who then gave birth to his offspring and would continue the royal lineage. The reality is that God has always used imperfect and real people in difficult situations for mighty things. Jesus is still a continuation of this story. When I read the Christmas story this week, I heard this, God does not need perfect people to bring about perfect love. Maybe you think that you can't be used by God or your family can't be used by God or, or that everything's too broken for anything good to, to, to happen. And, and let me remind you again to read the Christmas story and say this was Jesus' family. Riddled with scandal and brokenness and pain and side eyes and, and soft whispers and, and, and rumor mills. And that's the family that God said, that's going to be mine. That's where my perfect love is going to be born. God does not need perfect people to bring about perfect love. God can use me and God can use you and God can use everybody for mighty things. But Matthew's not done. The story of this infant Jesus, the, the introduction to who Jesus is, continues in chapter 2. And, and rather than reading it for you verbatim, because it's a whole chapter of the Bible, I'm going to summarize real quick. This is when the Magi visit, right? The wise men. Remember the Magi? This is the, the kids in the robes are a little bit too long for them, carrying the boxes that uh, have nothing inside of them. And, and occasionally they trip or they sing a little bit too loud. That, that's the Magi, right? And, and the word for Magi, it's really a word that means like an astrologer or a magician, somebody uh, who can interpret dreams and interpret the skies. These are kind of mystical uh, sages, right, that come from the east, it says. One theory is the star that they were following, we, we know about the star from the Christmas story, it, it could have actually been the astrological uh, uh, event of Jupiter and Saturn aligning because Jupiter was thought to be sort of a royal uh, celestial object and Saturn evidently was associated with the Jewish people and so when they aligned, they could have said, oh, the king of the Jews is being born, right? That's kind of cool. It's kind of neat when you learn stuff like that, like I did this past week. You know, pastors learn new things all the time. And so they go to this King Herod, right? This is the guy. He's the, he's the, um, the installed ruler by the Roman uh, authorities. He's, he's sort of the installed king over the Jewish people. He, he has no rightful claim to the Jewish throne. He has no royal lineage, but he's the guy that the Romans put in charge. And they go to Herod, and they ask him a really funny question. They said, could you point us to the king of the Jews? They say this to the king of the Jews, right? They walk up. It's like if you're in the company uh, offices, you walk up to the CEO and you could say, could you tell me where the CEO is, right? I'm right here. No, 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 I need the real, I need the real, who's really in charge? I, I'm right here. And the wise men say, no, 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 you don't understand. The king of the Jews has just been born, right? Which is really good news for Herod. Tyrants love being told that their rule is coming to an end, Yeah. So the man, he says, tell you what, why don't you go and find this king of the Jews, and then, and then, you know, tell me where he is. I would love to bring him a little baby gift, you know? <laughs> so they go, they go and they bring him what? Frankincense and myrrh and gold. These are gifts that would be honoring of a king, and, and this is important because uh, these wise men aren't Jewish, and yet they're honoring this baby like he's their own king as well. It's Matthew saying already in chapter 2, you know, Jesus isn't just here for the Jewish people. Jesus is here for a lot more than that, and he's going to tell us how. 
So the Magi are then visited in a dream, and an angel says, um, by the way, I don't know if you picked up on this, but that Herod dude is bad news. Don't go back to him, right? And so they don't. They just bolt. And then Herod now knows that there is an infant born king of the Jews somewhere in his empire, and he doesn't know where. And so he, do, he does the most rational thing, right? He orders that every child, male child under the age of two, be killed, Because that's what people who are hungry and thirsty for power and will do anything to get it, that's the kind of things they do when that power is threatened. And if this sounds familiar to you, it's because you may be remembering the story of Moses, right? Moses also was born in a time when infants were being killed, and yet he miraculously ends up in the house of Pharaoh, right? He ends up in this really privileged position. The opposite happens with Jesus, An angel visits Joseph and says, Joseph, you've got to go. Your family needs to leave now. And so they go on the run as asylum seekers into Egypt. They go into Egypt and they live there until the angel visits again and says, it's safe, you can leave. King Herod has died, right? Matthew makes these three prophetic claims in chapter 2 that I think we need to hear because he's giving us a hint at the real power that Jesus holds, and that Jesus is not just here to be king of the Jews, but is here for something even greater. First, in chapter 2, he quotes Isaiah. This is one of the Old Testament prophets, and and he quotes Isaiah saying, I have called my son out of Egypt. This is when Joseph returns from Egypt. Uh, Then Matthew says, this was to fulfill the prophecy of Hosea that said, I will call my son out of Egypt. Matthew's connecting Jesus' story again to the story of salvation for the Jewish people. He's saying, you know, Jesus is here to honor that salvation that Israel was promised. Second, he quotes this lament of Jeremiah when, when we learn that Herod is beginning to slaughter the kids. Uh, he, he, there's this lament of Jeremiah where it's, it's crying out. Israel's crying out that her children are dying. And, and what Matthew's doing is he's connecting Jesus, saying Jesus is with us in our current struggle and oppression. He's with us in this dark place. And then third, lastly, Matthew quotes Isaiah. And when, when Joseph and Mary and Jesus finally get to Nazareth, what's going to be Jesus' hometown where he's going to grow up, Matthew reminds us that, uh, that Isaiah says that the Messiah will come out of the root of Jesse, which is important because Nazareth comes from a Hebrew word that means branch. And Jesus comes from the family of David. So Jesus is a boy from David's lineage who's growing up in a town called Branch, right? Out of the root of Jesse. Matthew's connecting Jesus not just to the present situation of the Jewish people, but to a future promise of salvation for all people. This is how Matthew tells the story of who Jesus is. The next chapter, Jesus is an adult. This is all of Jesus' childhood that Matthew shares. This is the introduction. And when I, when I read this second chapter of Matthew, the last layer of love that I hear Matthew uh, sharing with us is that God's love is redemptive. God's love is redemptive. Matthew is introducing Jesus as nothing less than the Savior of the world. He doesn't send Jesus into some nice, shiny place. He doesn't send him on a basket into the royal court. He sends him into a manger with a family who has to flee the violence and brokenness and oppression of their home. He's saying Jesus is someone who understands what it's like to be in a really dark 
place. He understands what it's like to live in a real broken world. And even though God is with us, it's not enough that God is just with us. God is also here to save us. God is here to lift us up, to lift us out, to take us higher. And not only is God here to save the whole world thrive. Again, I want us to not just see the broad brushstrokes, but see the fine detail. God is not only here to save the whole world. God is here to save the individual. God is here to save you. Where Herod tries to eliminate all the children in his kingdom for the sake of one, God puts at stake his entire kingdom for the sake of you. Do you see the difference? God's willing to risk everything for the safety of one family, one life, one person. That person is not just Jesus. That person is every person in this room, outside these walls, and in this world. It's not enough for God to be with us here on earth. God's ultimate goal, what God has been working towards for these 2,000 years leading up to Jesus and for 2,000 years since, is that the whole world, you included, could be uplifted to the kingdom of God for good. Matthew is showing us that God has not only come down, but God also has plans to lift up. God comes down as Christ so that we can be lifted up to God. God comes down as Christ so that we could be lifted up to God. I started this Advent sharing with you that, that this Advent season for me began on kind of a darker note. Uh, my, my grandmother passed away a few weeks ago. And that really sent me into a dark place because I began to grieve. My therapist calls it anticipatory grief, right? I began to grieve all the people that I know I'm going to have to say goodbye to one day. Because, you know, gosh darn it, my family lives a long time, so I haven't had to mourn that many people in my life. I realize it's a privilege I get to experience. And so I was processing through that this Advent season. I shared in the beginning of Advent how there were little moments in that Thanksgiving week that really helped to lift me out. And today I want to share with you a couple of moments that helped lift me out of, of again, as I began to cycle back downward and I began to think about, you know, all the things that I am not thankful for, all the things that pain me, um, this past week happened. And it was beautiful. And it's, it's something that makes me so thankful for, for this church and the way that I feel God's love here. First, there was the everybody's Christmas, yeah? How many of us were able to serve in everybody's Christmas this year? I want to say thank you to those of you who served. I want to thank you to those who brought coats. Thank you to those who did anything at all to make that night possible. We had over 500 guests with us, people who were homeless. I got to be a bus captain on one of the buses for Austin Street Shelter. Uh, we brought two buses uh, of friends from Austin Street Shelter. We had over 500 people, formerly incarcerated individuals, their families, their loved ones. We had people, I believe, uh, exiting domestic violence situations that were here as well. And we had a small army of volunteers. And, and you know, seeing those candles lifted up and singing Silent Night and hear, feeling the peace in the room, a room in which there was a lot of reasons not to have peace, that gave me peace. If this room can have peace, I can have peace. 
If this room can experience joy and love, certainly I can as well. I got to experience the the tangible change of God's love, even in something as simple as riding the bus from Austin Street to here and then from here back to Austin Street. The first bus ride, I heard bickering. I heard arguments about this, that, or the other. Uh, Somebody had done something to somebody, and a couple of rows weren't too happy about it. And I stayed out of it as as my little van instruction said, don't get in the middle of it, which that's good for me to read because I try to be a peacekeeper and like, that's good, just stay out of it, Scott. And then we're riding back from the church, and rather than bickering, we're singing Christmas carols. That may seem trivial to you, but that's not to me. That's the power of love. And then uh, last night, I got to come up here for the service of the longest night. I want to thank Don Anderson and Stephen Lashley and Taylor uh, and uh, Bev Selby uh, for your efforts to help lead that. Um, Because that was a service that I just needed to go to. If you don't know what the service of the longest night is, I hope you'll go next year. It's a, it's a service where we just acknowledge that sometimes the Christmas season uh, has dark places as well. And in the winter season, that, right, that's when the winter solstice happens. It's when the longest night of the year occurs. And sometimes when we're in those dark places, we need to light candles to remember that there is hope, there is joy, there is peace, there is love. And that was a balm for me this year. That was a balm for me this year. So I felt myself lifted. And then this morning... This isn't even in the script or in my thoughts. This morning, I walk in, and I hear my friends Rick and Virginia Herrick say, Hey, Scott, come over here. And there's a a man standing there named John. And John uh, used to be uh, at the Powledge Unit. It's where we do our prison ministry. He said, "I've I've met you. I said, your face looks so familiar. He said, yeah, I've heard you preach. I heard you preach your first sermon at Powell's Union. I said, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. Um, he, he said, you were still in seminary. I said, I bet I sounded like it too. And uh, he said, and so he had, he's been out for a couple of years. This was his second year coming back to Lover's Lane. They come back each Christmas because our, a lot of our Powell's guys come up for everybody's Christmas. And we were just talking about the gift and the joy that is that prison ministry. Did you know that Lover's Lane's been in ministry with the Pallage Unit? And we've had over 8,000 men go through our prison ministry program in that unit. 8,000 men. Did you know that the, in the state of Texas, the, oh, hold, no, hold your applause, hold your applause. Did you know in the state of Texas, the recidivism rate average is about 75, 78%. And for the men who go through our program, the recidivism rate is under 5%. Right? Now that's because of two things. That's, number one, because of the way in which God's working in that. I believe that, right? And number two, it's because they are given the gift of community, loving Christian community that can love them into healthy and holy living outside the walls of Pallage, just like they were loved into it inside. Now, I, I needed to meet John this morning. I needed to meet John. I needed to be reminded that Christ doesn't just come to give us uh, nicely wrapped Christmas presents and uh, you know breakfast casserole and warm feelings with our families, right? As important as those things are, Christ comes because this world is in need of redemption. And there are broken people in broken places, and I'm one of them, and I live in it. And we need nothing less than the Savior of the world who is here to put wrong things right to see a world in darkness and to shine a light into it, to fill every heart within it with love. So this Christmas, I hope hope this week that there are moments for you that lift you up, that you are reminded, as Matthew's reminding us, that God's love is deliberate, that you're here on purpose. You're not here by mistake. This week is not by mistake. 
that God's love is real. Whatever mess you think you're living in or whatever mess you think you are, God can work with it. Say amen, somebody. And God's love is redemptive. Do not sell God short. God is here for nothing less than total salvation. And I say thanks be to God. Merry Christmas. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for this morning. We give you thanks for this entire weekend. We give you thanks for this week to come. God, I'm not sure how we walked in this morning, but God, I pray that whether we were walking in on a mountaintop or walking in in the deepest valley, that you would continue to lift us up. That you would remind us of the layers of your love. Remind us of how deliberate your love is, that it is intentional and purpose-filled, that every one of us is where we are today, not by mistake. We were created because you thought this world wasn't enough without us in it. And you celebrated our birth the same way that we celebrate the birth of Christ. God, remind us that your love is real. That you don't live in la-la land. That you understand we have real problems and we face real broken situations. And we may feel real broken ourselves, but God, you remind us that you could work with the holy family. And you can work with us. God, remind us that your love is redemptive. That what you offer us is not cheap grace. It's not a fake smile or the fleeting feeling of a warm heart. What you offer us is pure and complete and total salvation. Not just for us, but also for the world. And not just for the world, but also for us. God, as we prepare ourselves to receive you again this Christmas season, help to open our hearts that we could allow ourselves to be lifted by your love, that we could again receive the pure innocence and joy that is the Christ child. God, we give you thanks this morning for all the ways in which you love us so well. In your son's name we pray, amen.